Welcome to season six of One Day You'll Thank Me, a podcast for smart parents and therapists. I'm Dr. Tara Egan. And I'm Anna. I'm a mom, a therapist, a group practice owner, a parent coach, and an author. And I'm her daughter and a kick-ass high school student. Each week, we'll discuss a different topic that is relevant to your family and your life as a parent. And we'll also interview some amazing guest experts. Our goal is to provide an interesting and informational resource for busy parents. We're also offering the perspective of a teen. So tune in every Wednesday. Crushed it. Hello, welcome back to One Day You'll Thank Me. My name is Dr. Tara Egan, and I really appreciate you all being here today. Unfortunately, we don't have Anna with us. She as I've mentioned before, is a senior and lives a wild and crazy life of school and work and boyfriend and senior year activities. So she tapped out of this one because she's pretty sure in Spanish class right now. So I'm excited to tell you all about the guest expert we're having today. She is somebody that I've known of for several years because she works in the Charlotte area. And I'm not sure we've met in person ever but i know we we got to chat in person recently our new office we had a like a little holiday party and she came and we got to talk a little bit more with her about the work that she does and so she she was lucky enough to be willing to come on the podcast so let me tell you about her her name is Sheethal Patel and she is a licensed psychotherapist and a former attorney who specializes in working with adults experiencing anxiety depression eating disorders trauma and relationship issues, as well as working with the LGBTQ identities. She excels at working with high performers and professionals around stress management, life transitions, work-life balance, career direction, and racial and cultural concerns. Sheetha works with adult clients to develop a stronger sense of self, practice effective coping skills, reduce unhelpful behaviors, and increase connection in order to live a life that is meaningful and aligned with their values. She has nearly 20 years of professional work experience in law and mental health. And you all know I like to talk to lawyers. So this is like the perfect marriage of mental health and law. (laughs) She's the owner and operator of a private practice in South End, Dilworth area of Charlotte. She is a volunteer presenter with Brave Step Charlotte, the Charlotte Transgender Healthcare Group, and other local groups. She enjoys facilitating corporate trainings and public speaking, sharing her story to support others in making transformational life changes, and advocating for community and workplace conversations around mental health. So you can find out more about her services at her website, which is www.spatelservices.com. And you can also find her on Instagram, and her handle is at attorney turned therapist, which I absolutely love. Thank you, Sheetal, for being here today. Thank you, Tara. I'm really excited to talk with you about eating disorders and trauma and have this conversation today. Thanks again for having me on your podcast. You're very welcome. I think this is a topic that really never gets old, is relevant for almost everyone out there, whether it's something they're struggling with or they know someone who struggles with this. You know, I wish Anna was here because, you know, as she's heading off to college, we know that eating disorders can play a significant role in that population. So to be able to know what the red flags, I guess, are to look for and how to support these individuals, even if it's not yourself, I think is just so helpful. Thank you. Well, before we start, I always like to ask guest experts to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they got into their line of work. 
So you've had two professions, both as attorney and as a therapist. So I want to hear a little bit about your journey. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I was an attorney for several years. I'm actually from Chicago. So that's where I spent all of my legal career. And, you know, I worked in several different environments, you know, small firms for government agencies, the city of Chicago, the attorney general's office, as well as big firms. And at some point, you know, it just felt like the work felt a little bit less meaningful and fulfilling for me. I was pretty burned out, you know, working almost 80 hours a week and things like that. And so I actually went to see a therapist who did career work a little bit similar to myself. And she worked with a lot of attorneys. Actually, she specialized mostly just working with attorneys looking for alternative legal careers. And so I spent quite a bit of time with her. She's very methodical. And so really just kind of processing and using the therapeutic process to talk about what would be a better fit for me. And I majored in psychology in undergrad, so it wasn't really a huge leap for me. I've always been interested in, you know, the mind and human behavior. So I decided to make the transition to mental health and was lawyering full time for a few years while I went back to school. So that was a little challenging, to say the least, while doing an internship, part time school and, of course, lawyering full time. And so then I transitioned into mental health and Worked for several years at Eating Recovery Center Chicago, which, as its name indicates, specializes in the intensive treatment of eating disorders as well as mood and anxiety disorders. And so that's really where I kind of cut my teeth with eating disorder treatment and getting specialized training in this particular area before moving into private practice. Wow. That's, I mean, it's interesting how, as we move into our training, where we're initially placed, like in an internship environment or, you know, where we make connections. And sometimes there's clinicians as they're trying to find a placement for internship or practicum where they're like, okay, let's just see what's available in my area, you know, and I'll go and kind of try anything. And they might go and say, oh gosh, this isn't for me. Or they might go and be at a location where they have a wonderful mentor and they feel connected to their clients. And it might not have been a field that they could have imagined getting so invested in, but they do. And some people are driven by, you know, they have experience in a certain area. You know, my brother, he's been on this podcast, you know, works with the alcohol substance abuse programs, and he also experienced addiction. And so he's got, you know, so much passion for the population he works with. So do you have like aspects of your life that you find really relatable when it comes to eating disorders and trauma? I think for both, I mean, particularly, and, you know, Forgive me for using the gender binary in this case, but I think women, you know, in Western culture are often really socialized around particular body images from the beginning. I think it's about the statistic is about 97% of women report body image dissatisfaction, and that's an overwhelming. So I think growing up with the same, you know, social pressures that we face, that was just an area that I've always been interested in. And when I started taking classes, you know, in graduate school for eating disorders, it just became really apparent that that was something that would be a good fit for me. And certainly I've, you know, been in contact with other folks with eating disorder struggles throughout high school and college, just like most of you probably do. And some people aren't even aware that maybe they have some disorder eating. I know you and I will talk a little bit about soon. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just a really prevalent issue in our society. And so I think if somebody has the thought of like, gosh, I've just never had to deal with this in any form. I think probably they're 
that would probably be an inaccurate statement. It just might have been something that you were, like you said, unaware of, or you didn't realize how much this was shaping the thinking of yourself or your friends or your family. And within the home culture, you know, so much of the verbiage and, you know, discussion about food and bodies and all of that, like it's happening, you know, it's happening and it could be something that's done in a really healthy way. Or it could be something that sort of saddles you with feelings or a negative body image. And so it's sometimes hard to tease out the right way to talk about these things. Let's, I guess, before we delve deeper into the conversation, you know, because we're here to talk about eating disorders and trauma, let's take a minute to describe the term eating disorder. How is this different from disordered eating or is it? They are a little bit different. So that's a great question, Tara. You know, disordered eating, both of those terms, disordered eating and eating disorder, share some commonalities, but it is important to recognize they're not exactly the same. So an eating disorder is a clinical diagnosis, and disordered eating refers to what we would describe as abnormal eating patterns that don't meet the criteria for an eating disorder diagnosis. Someone with an eating disorder may exhibit disordered eating behaviors, but not all people with disordered eating will be diagnosed with an eating disorders. So really, there's a few key differences between disordered eating and eating disorders. People with disordered eating don't necessarily meet the diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder, and they may not have the same intense fear of gaining weight. That's the top characteristic of eating disorders. So really, the primary difference between disordered eating and eating disorders involves the severity and degree of the symptoms. Disordered eating frequently involves many of the same behaviors that occur in eating disorders, but the symptoms may occur less frequently or less intensely, but that doesn't mean we should take them any less serious. I'm taking notes here because I want to be able to speak more intelligently about this. I like that being able to determine the difference between the two. And then you said this last thing you said, where the symptoms may be present, but they might not be to the same degree of frequency or intensity. And so is it up to an expert in the field, you know, and a clinician to determine the difference between these circumstances? Is it an important process for somebody who might be struggling with this? Let's say you're a parent and you have a child who could be struggling with this. Do you, at what point do you say, okay, this is problematic, whether or not it meets clinical, like diagnostic, you know, am I trying to say whether or not it truly falls under the category of a clinical diagnosis, at what point do we start to wonder as a parent, goodness, like this is beyond just like their young, their child looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, I should not have eaten all those donuts yesterday. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that seeing an eating disorder specialist is really the kind of treatment that you need to really discern the difference between disordered eating and eating disorder. Regardless, treatment is probably necessary and it's really crucial to have someone who is experienced in the field of eating disorders to determine the difference between them because eating disorders are often more recognizable and represent diagnosable conditions, whereas disordered eating can often be more subtle, making it a little bit more difficult to recognize or at times some, you know, at some times more challenging to address. And, you know, having gone unnoticed for a long time, disordered eating can contribute to the development and onset of an eating disorder. So as just a couple of examples, in case this is helpful, a couple of signifiers of an eating disorder might be obsessive thoughts about food. 
in disordered eating, they may be eating for reasons other than nourishment or hunger. With an eating disorder, there's extreme concerns about calories and significant changes in weight. With disordered eating, the person may be eating to deal with stress or emotional difficulties. They may also be engaging in calorie restriction, binging, or purging irregularly or on a limited basis. With eating disorders, the person often has really obsessive thoughts related to shape and weight. So those are just a couple of differences between those two. But as you can see, they're very similar. So it's important to have a specialist be able to help discern that. And particularly for a clinical diagnosis, which would be really helpful for insurance, you'd want someone to be able to you know, diagnose them with the appropriate diagnosis. And I don't know if you take insurance. I don't. So I know nothing about it. But if a clinician diagnoses somebody with an eating disorder, then it's likely that insurance is more likely to cover that because it's a clinical diagnosis. But if a therapist recognizes there's disordered eating or disordered thinking about food, is there a risk that insurance wouldn't cover that, even though this is a person who demonstrates the need for mental health care? That's a great question, because I will often use eating disorder not otherwise specify the EDNOS diagnostic criteria so that patients can actually get the clinical treatment that they need covered by insurance because I believe that is no less severe. And of course, patients need their insurance coverage if they're going to use that for treatment, particularly if, you know, I work with a lot of patients who I'm often stepping up to higher levels of care, like residential or intensive outpatient treatment, and then they may step down. So often I'll be filling out paperwork or giving diagnostic criteria so that they can get the coverage by insurance that they need. Like you, I don't accept insurance either, but I do provide those clinical diagnoses so that they can either get their reimbursement for insurance or if they're stepping up to a high level of care, they're getting the coverage that they need for treatment. Sometimes when I express a concern to the parent, like I have a suspicion that a child is having or experiencing disordered eating patterns. And, and, you know, from my perspective as a person who's not an expert in this, you know, my goal is to refer them out to somebody that does have that expertise. But when I bring it up as a topic to parents, sometimes they'll say, well, the reason why my daughter, for example, is talking about that or acting in that way is because she's actually a kid who just has so much anxiety. And so it, it kills her appetite or she wants to be more in control or really maybe it's more about, you know, the social group she's hanging out with where they're super focused on looks. And I know my kid's been on Instagram and when I look at her feed, there's a ton of models and things like that. And so they kind of want to tell me, no, no, it's not really an eating based symptomology. It's based on some other underlying issue that may be impacting their eating. And so they're trying to explain that to me as why it might be appropriate for that child to stay under my care. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are when you hear that, because I do sometimes see some like fear and defensiveness to parents when the idea is floated that, okay, this could be disordered eating. Mm, That's a really great question, Tara. You know, I think that it's not that the parents are Parents are correct in that way of there may be underlying issues for sure, but with eating disorder symptomatology, particularly if it's severe, we can't get to those underlying issues in an emotionally safe way until we've worked on the eating disorder symptoms. So for example, otherwise what happens is if I have a client with trauma or even anxiety and they also have an eating disorder, right? You and I probably see lots of folks with a dual diagnosis. If I go straight into treating the trauma, 
what may happen is we run the risk of that client having re-experiencing with trauma symptoms. They flare up and then they use their eating disorder to cope because they haven't learned healthy coping skills. So as an eating disorder specialist, it is ethically appropriate for me to treat the eating disorder symptoms first before I'm getting into something like an underlying issue like trauma. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't work on both the eating disorder as well as anxiety symptoms, but really focusing on the behavior, especially for teenagers, because I'll work with folks who are 17 and up. It is really important to work on the behavioral issues because when we do kind of get to some of those you know, more tender emotions and underlying issues, if they're using the eating disorder to cope, we're just getting into a bad spiral. So it's really important to see an eating disorder specialist who has the experience and understands how to kind of navigate this because it's not a linear process, right? It's not that I'm just done extinguishing the eating disorder symptoms. Folks are often going to go back and forth or they do what we call behavior swapping, right? Instead of eating disorder symptoms, it might be, well, now I'm using gaming or now I'm using substances or, you know, other risk-taking behaviors. So it really does take you know, an expert to be able to help navigate. But the great thing about what you're also talking about is, you know, I have often worked in tandem with other individual therapists who may be referring their clients out to me as the eating disorder specialist. So I'll work sometimes in conjunction. So maybe your individual client wants to stay with you and see you, you know, continue like every other week or something like that. But then they're also seeing me, you know, regularly or weekly to work on the eating disorder piece as well. So they don't necessarily feel like they have to pick and choose if that's what's holding them back from eating disorder treatment. It's, you know, it takes more effort, right? Like the person is going to have to see two therapists at the same time, but I do love to work collaboratively here with our therapists in Charlotte. So if that's what it takes to get the person the treatment they need, I am absolutely willing to do that. Well, and there are times when I'm like, let's get an expert in this as part of the team get this child assessed and then see what the recommendations are. Because if given my, my, the fact that I'm not an expert in this area, if we end up speaking to an expert and they can give us suggestions about how we move forward with the most effective plan possible, and they feel that the work we're doing, you know, maybe they're, maybe whether it's their behavior or their thought processes hasn't, you know, this is more of a suspicion I have that I want to rule out then they can help us do that. And then I can feel more comfortable knowing that I've done like due diligence and best practice and making sure that I'm not operating outside of my scope or that I'm, you know, not driving along the car alongside the treatment options and not actually dipping them into the right, you know, the right programming. And so that seems to be really helpful for parents is to say, okay, let's consult somebody who can rule this out or rule it in and give us a plan and we can figure out what the best you know, way is for me to support you guys. And that seems to be helpful versus saying, hey, you just need to be referred out and, you know, just kind of be done here. Like that can be very, you know, scary and stressful for clients. Absolutely. Because they've built, you know, trust and rapport with you for a long time. And to your point, you're trying to find out you know, diagnostically, what's the assessment here? And so for me, if I'll do that with other therapists, it will usually take a few sessions because you don't just meet a teenager and they just kind of tell you all of their eating disorder symptoms. I mean, I have some clients that won't reveal their they have eating disorder symptoms for months. So, you know, the assessment process is sort of a little bit careful and complex in that way. I think it can be done in that way. I'll you know, refer clients to other higher levels of care, or perhaps they'll see me 
in tandem with their individual therapist, but getting the information, I think, is the most important thing because it's hard to conceive of an eating disorder light therapy because there's so much shame around eating disorders that often clients will not tell you the full extent of what's going on because let's say they're seeing you once a week, right? There's so many other things that may be going on with school and relationships and family. It's really easy to, you know, minimize what's going on with the eating disorder symptoms also because they feel scary. So it's hard to do all of that work in literally 45 to 50 minutes, right? Because they're by themselves outside of session for the other 95 hours a week. Well, and that's kind of how it happened that they got in front of me as they presented with something else. And then weeks or months have gone by and I start to realize this is playing a role because my connection with that child has intensified to the point where I am getting information about some of these behaviors that they didn't reveal in the beginning. And so now, you know, I'm faced with like supporting them through finding the appropriate treatment, but not having them feel like they're, they have to become disconnected to me in the process. So it's wonderful to have connections out in the community that, you know, consultation can occur with, or like you said, a really collaborative approach. And I think that's how we see the most improvement in these clients. Now, I want to talk about trauma a little bit, but I wanted to go back real quick to something you had said, because you said the behaviors, the behaviors of an eating disorder. It's interesting because the work I do is so, like when I work with families and we talk about, you know, where the pain points are, it's, you know, what are you seeing? What are the things that are interfering with your family, you know, functioning in a place that feels good to you. And it's typically behaviors. We can't get it together in the morning without screaming and crying. Siblings are fighting all the time. You know, co-parents are talking about adult issues with children. Like there's very specific behaviors that are most of the time, you know, measurable behaviors that we can see and address versus something that's really abstract. And so when you said behaviors, I was like, okay, that's a word I understand. So thinking about behaviors associated with eating disorders, I'm thinking you're referring to things like avoiding meals, purging. What else? Am I on the right track? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I think of these as like the risk factors, like what are the red flags that loved ones can kind of look for? Right. So often it's really that preoccupation with weight, food, calories especially, you know, currently it's like carbs. I mean, we live in a diet culture, right? So another sign to look out for is refusal to eat certain foods and then kind of progressing to restrictions against whole categories of foods, right? No carbohydrates, no fruits, you know, no fat, something like that. If the person appears uncomfortable eating around others or maybe won't eat around others, you often catch that person saying, oh, I ate earlier, but you don't see an empty bowl of cereal in the sink. Other things that you may notice is skipping meals or taking smaller portions of food at regular meals. Some eating disorder clients will hide food, which is a little bit harder, you know, to figure out with folks, but also just noticing, you know, new practices with food or sort of, you know, again, cutting out entire food groups, even like withdrawal from usual friends and activities, especially things that involve eating out frequent dieting, but also looking out for things like mood swings and physically even, you know, for women, menstrual irregularities, cramps, other specific gastrointestinal complaints. With purging, for example, you can develop esophageal tears and sometimes parents won't know about that until much later. You know, adolescents are still growing and so that can be a real risk, especially if they've been doing that for a long period of time. 
So there's those behavioral pieces to look out for, but then also it has, of course, a physical and health impact as well. Yeah, I have heard about clients here and there who will typically, you know, bring a lunch to school and now they don't want to. And then if mom like packs something for them just so they have it on hand, they will refuse to take it off the counter or mom finds it in the garbage can in the garage that the kid walked through on the way to the bus stop or you know, whatever, or they will be avoidant of social situations like the team's going to go to this restaurant after and they tag out of that activity. And then I do see a lot of pressure, how someone's body looks when it is related to sports, you know, some, you know, women on the track team or wrestlers who are tasked with like making weight by a certain date so that they can stay within a certain weight class in wrestling, things like that. Absolutely. I mean, I remember growing up in high school, you know, there would be boys in high school who wouldn't eat for days and they would be restricting and then they would binge after wrestling season was over. So I think especially kids involved in athletics are at risk for eating disorders. And there's so much focus, not just on performance, but their bodies, whether they're muscular, you know, gymnastics, even soccer, cheerleading, dance team, wrestling, all of, you know, many, many different sports. We've got to look out for those things because their risk of developing eating disorders is just very strong. Gosh, my son's an athlete and he's in golf. And so far, there doesn't seem to be a lot of body image related Mm -hmm. to golf, thankfully. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the best one for that, at least from what I can tell. A common myth of eating disorders is primarily that the person is restricting, but there's actually a few different types of eating disorders. And the one that folks are most familiar with is anorexia nervosa, which is the primary you know, feature for anorexia nervosa is restricting. But then there's also the binge purge type, bulimia. There's also binge eating disorder, which is specifically binge eating. What I referred to earlier as EDNOS, eating disorders not other specified, which can represent disordered eating. And then ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, where there's dramatic loss, limited range of preferred foods, sometimes even fears of choking or vomiting but actually there's no negative body image connected with that. So that's an even more complex ones that parents may find harder to catch. That last one is so interesting because I have come across it several times in my career. It's very stressful for parents. And, you know, the parents are often really worried about their kids, you know, growth rate, you know, their energy levels, their strength, because these are kids who have denied themselves nutrition to the point where you know, they're really suffering and it's impacting their growth. That's my understanding of it in the cases that I've known about. Absolutely. And with young people, right? I mean, eat to nourish our bodies and our brains. So I think that fear of like brain development functioning with young people is very common for parents. And then it's tied to sleep. Eating is tied to sleep or nutrition is tied to sleep, which is also tied to behavior. So then you have kids who are, you know, Maybe they're irritable, you know, they're snapping at their parents, they're having, you know, really heightened emotionality. I mean, it just kind of can make its way through all the domains within the child's life. Absolutely. And there's all kinds of very specific physical symptoms to look out for when I do an eating disorder assessment that even the clients themselves aren't really aware of that they're connected to eating disorders, whether it's, you know, feeling cold all the time, feeling dizzy, having like cuts in these calluses across the top of their finger joints. That's a result of inducing vomiting. Hmm. Dental problems also from binge purging, dry skin and hair, swelling around your salivary glands, more cavities, muscle weakness, 
you know, I'll look at kind of like temperature. I'll talk to them about temperature changes as well in their feet or hands. And these are all sort of eating disorder symptoms that someone may not notice right away. And even clients themselves may either be underreporting, minimizing, or avoiding reporting as a physical problem altogether. And it doesn't mean it's always caught by doctors or pediatricians. Yeah, because so much of it is their personal experience and they have to be willing to share. Whereas a parent or a loved one might be able to report on you know, other behaviors, like whether or not after they bought their favorite protein bars, did anyone eat them? You know, like there's some things there that are just not, you know, to get an understanding through the client's perspective, like, like having temperature changes and things like that. I mean, that's going to be a harder thing for someone else to be aware of and be able to report about. And because we live in diet culture, right? If parents themselves have negative body image or they're dieting and things like that, of course, you know, kids and teenagers pick up on that. And so that can be something that, you know, they sort of pick up without those explicit conversations. There's a lot of language within a home that can be food focused, you know, shaming all of the commentary about, oh God, I was so bad last night. You know, I ate this dessert or I had two glasses of wine and all those calories or, you know, just the verbiage that we give or, you know, oh God, I look so fat in these jeans today. I don't even want to go. And those are comments that, you know, kids really internalize and use towards themselves if and parents can be really unaware about the impact that, that it has on the rest of their family members. Absolutely. Because it's, I mean, I say with eating disorders, it's about the food, but it's not about the food, right? I mean, part of eating disorder work is developing a healthy relationship with food and finding healthier coping mechanisms than abusing food or under eating food in order to control certain aspects of our lives. So again, it's about the food, but it's not about the food. It's related to our emotional selves. And so that work, it does take time for treatment. And that's why, particularly with, you know, kids and adolescents, teenagers, eating disorders are not the problem of the individual. It's a family system issue to you know, really address with the whole system. So in higher levels of care, for example, they will have family sessions with loved ones so that they can support their loved one through eating disorder treatment as well and kind of arm them with knowledge and resources. I think that's a huge component, you know, like what an amazing resource for families to get as a whole. And even though they might not initiate that type of treatment until a loved one has been you know, kind of embroiled so significantly in the symptoms of the eating disorder that it's gotten to a very worrisome state. But then with these programs that pull the family in so that when as that person starts to progress, they're not going back into an environment that isn't able to reinforce healthy new strategies. And, you know, everybody can kind of benefit. Of course, everybody's got to be willing to participate, but it's amazing that that those resources are so understanding and knowledgeable about it being a family systems issue. Absolutely. Because, I mean, we're humans, right? As parents, we have our own emotions that we're coping with as well. So I will, in addition to working with individuals with eating disorders, I will often work with parents who have, you know, loved ones who are in eating disorder treatment as well, because parents need their own support around that, not just what's going on with children, but like what's going on in your own life that impacts your own emotion regulation, right? As you do parent coaching, you know that parents who are more emotionally regulated have kids who are more emotionally regulated. And so the work that you put into as a parent on your own emotional wellness will absolutely benefit your entire family. 
Well, let's think about the trauma piece of it. As we move forward in our discussion about the relationship between trauma and eating disorders, let's take a second and define the term trauma so that we're all, you know, conceptualizing that term in the same way as we proceed with the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably the most common definition of trauma that people are familiar with is that something that is defined as trauma is a distressing and disturbing experience. And that's a really broad definition of trauma. I think what people are most familiar with in trauma is, what. so there's a difference between what we call big T and little t. Big T is sort of that single incident event, such as a car accident, a car wreck, a natural disaster, some kind of major event that we can say this was a traumatic event. You know, someone who has been to war will think of that as a major event that has caused PTSD. But then there's also what we call little t, right? These are more repetitive incidents that occur over time, whether that's psychological abuse, verbal abuse, someone may be experiencing abuse and neglect. So let's not, let's also remember that neglect is a part of trauma. Someone who's experienced abandonment or a caregiver who is not around for a long period of time. But an even more interesting, you know, definition of trauma, Gabor Mate, who is a really interesting physician and speaker who talks a lot about trauma. He's also a Holocaust survivor, so he talks about his own experiences of trauma impacting him. He also talks about trauma in the sense of trauma occurs when a child feels alone in their feelings, that they're experiencing their feelings alone, and they don't have others necessarily to help them understand what emotions are happening or to cope with them or how those emotions are supposed to look. So there's a few different kinds of definitions of trauma to be aware of. And hopefully just that brief snapshot was a little bit helpful. Well, I think of the children that I work with who have experienced chronic bullying, who have been, for example, in a a teen relationship that is abusive, a kid who's experienced chronic school failure or just unsuccess in school where they feel like they're, you know, I can't do this. I'm overwhelmed. I keep failing. This is the third time I've taken algebra one people think I'm dumb, whatever it is, like there isn't like this one moment of time, you know, where they experienced a big T moment, but they're, they've been in this chronically stressful environment for a long time. So those are some examples that I think of when thinking about the kids I work with. Absolutely. Even families who move around a lot, that can have an impact on a child. So I'm less concerned about the label of trauma and more about how that experiences the individual right? And we can just think of trauma as an emotional response to events. Okay. So thinking about individuals with eating disorders, is trauma a defining characteristic? Is that something that's almost or either always or almost always seen in these circumstances? Not necessarily. I've treated folks with eating disorders who don't have a trauma history. People develop eating disorders for all kinds of reasons. Trauma is one of them. But essentially, if we think about using food to cope or not using food to cope and essentially restricting, right, that's just one way to cope with painful feelings. And it may be the result of trauma. It also may be the result of deep-seated feelings of insecurity or shame or loneliness or guilt, all kinds of different emotional responses that may be unlinked to trauma altogether. Now, I do treat folks with that dual diagnosis of both PTSD or complex PTSD 
and eating disorders as well. So I think it's really dependent on the individual. And sometimes I may not learn about trauma from a client until much later when they really feel comfortable and they're able to trust me as their therapist to share that. And so that, you know, shifts a little bit of the way that I treat the person, of course, but it really does kind of depend on the individual. So I wouldn't say there's necessarily a majority of cases in which trauma is linked. What about like, what are variables that make a person more susceptible to developing eating disorder? Trauma is one of them, clearly. But are there other things that families, as they kind of think about their family dynamics or the experience that the members of their families are having, what are things that could or are more likely to trigger eating disorders? That is a great question because it's sort of threefold, right? There's biological, psychological, and then social as well. So some risk factors biologically would be having a close relative with an eating disorder or a caregiver with chronic dieting that's going on, having a close relative with a mental health condition, also having a history of dieting. Interestingly enough, there's recent research that has found that approximately like one quarter of women diagnosed with type 1 diabetes will also develop an eating disorder. This common pattern they call of skipping insulin injections is called diabolemia. And that can be really dangerous for folks. And then there's, of course, those psychological risk factors. So perfectionism, body image dissatisfaction, personal history of an anxiety disorder, behavioral inflexibility. Hmm. Tell me about that, behavioral inflexibility. Yeah. So many folks that are diagnosed with anorexia and nervosa report that as children, they always followed the rules and they felt that there was a right way to do things. So the characteristic that I look out for is rigidity. Makes sense to me. So they're kids who don't have flexibility. It's hard for them to modify their thinking or their emotional response to something that happens maybe unexpectedly or has a stressful component that they didn't anticipate. So they can kind of go into a place of like, for the way I see it is, you know, kids who either have big emotions or they have avoidance behavior or refusal behavior because they can't adjust to some sort of unexpected circumstance. Absolutely. I mean, rule followers, that's definitely something to look out for. And folks, you know, who feel like there's a right way to do things. So that black and white thinking that you and I have probably seen a lot in treatment. It does seem like the teenagers that I work with who show characteristics of this, they do create a lot of like routine behavior around their eating. You know, like, okay, well, this is what I will allow myself to have in the morning or before a dance recital or on my birthday or whatever it is, you know, on a Saturday or after I exercise or before I exercise. And there just seems to be a lot of rules. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be like, you know, a casual approach to food being, hey, what's available here? What would I enjoy eating? What would make my body feel good right now? There doesn't seem to be a lot of openness to having that type of experience with food. Absolutely. Food rituals is definitely a warning sign to look out for. Particularly with binging and purging, there is sort of a routine and a structure that folks will follow when they're engaging in kind of binge purge episodes. But even with anorexia, or again, it's that combination type, there are food rituals that are often involved. So with binging, for example, the person may go out and specifically look for binge food to buy. They may hide it somewhere. They may be having purging rituals where they go a certain place outside of the home to do things. So there's definitely structure and routine that is often followed by folks who are struggling with disordered eating or eating disorders. 
wow, I feel like I've learned so much today and we're, <laughs> you know, like it's a, it's, I know it's just a snippet, you know, it's just biting off this little piece of this topic, but it's it just makes you think about all the places in your world where you can recognize, hey, that was something that I remember seeing in my own family, or that makes sense based on how my roommate acted in college, or, you know, it, it starts to pull together experiences that people might have in their day-to-day life, what should people do? If you're, you know, a person, let's say there's a lot of parents who listen to this podcast. Let's say you're a parent and you're recognizing some of these things in yourself or in one of your children or your partner, like what's the next step? What should they do? Well, if the child is already in therapy, absolutely talking to that therapist is sort of the first order of business because that particular therapist may or may not specialize in the treatment of eating disorders. So seeing an eating disorder specialist, most folks will go to an eating disorder therapist at the outpatient level, which is what you and I do, right? When folks Mm -hmm. may see us for maybe an hour a week, maybe twice at most. But seeing an eating disorder specialist is really important to do an actual assessment to find out if that person can be treated at an outpatient level. Is it appropriate for that person to be able to progress into health by only being seen maybe once or twice a week, even by an eating disorder specialist. So sometimes I will do that assessment and I'll need to refer that client to what we call a higher level of care. So that might be intensive outpatient treatment where maybe they're going to a treatment center three to five days a week or PHP, a partial hospitalization program where they're either staying there or staying at home, but they're receiving more intensive treatment about seven days a week. And then it may even be residential or potentially inpatient treatment if there's medical factors that are at risk. So it's really important, again, to see that person who specializes in eating disorder work, like myself, to be able to do a clinical assessment so we can really get that person the best treatment that they need. But then there's also resourcing yourself. There's lots of different resources that I think parents can lean on to learn more about disordered eating and eating disorders as well. Well, and I think that when parents get support earlier in the process, then there is hopefully a protective element of your, their kid not having to be as interrupted in their day-to-day life. I know parents who've expressed like, we've talked to a different, a couple different people and this person or that person said that my child needs to do this, you know, partial hospitalization program, which means they would be, you know, leaving their high school, even if it's just temporary. And then, you know, they're not going to be able to participate you know, the professional doesn't feel that they should be going to, you know, football practice because it burns so many calories and, you know, my child is in danger. And so it can really get into a space where parents start to panic at the idea of their child who is already struggling with this, but then to have their whole, you know, like day-to-day life be disruptive. And for parents who have you know, fear about this is it they'll be like, oh, this feels like over overkill because they might have been living with their child and their disordered eating habits for, you know, years at that point. Like what, today's the day? Like he just can't go back to school and he can't finish out the football season and he's in 11th grade and there's scouts looking at him and, you know, and it just really, you know, gets so intense and stressful. And so I do encourage parents like, even if there's things that you have kind of suspicions over or you see that there's some unhealthy dynamics, but you don't know that it's going to you know, spiral into a full-blown eating disorder, that is a really good time to get support for your children because you can be really preventative of them having their lives be 
be disrupted. I mean, what are your thoughts about that, Sheetal? Absolutely. You know, I'm a therapist who also really believes in treatment proactively and preventatively. If we can try to help get under the problem before it either becomes a full-blown eating disorder or we have to take you to residential or inpatient treatment, then that is really important. Is eating disorder treatment or any sort of therapy disruptive in some way, right? Like sometimes kids will have to, as you know, right, leave school early or miss a practice or something like that to go to therapy. But it's essential to their emotional wellness in the long term, right? Things like eating disorders can impact their brain development and functioning. So yes, it might be disruptive. They may miss soccer. They may not be able to go to football practice. But if we can get under those issues and start helping kids and adolescents and folks develop healthy ways of coping rather than using and abusing food, that's going to be essential to their well-being in the long run as well. And we know parents really care. You know, we as parents care about that. Yeah. And a lot of times when kids learn and they get educated about eating disorders and how it's impacting them and what the risks are if it's not treated, and and then they hear like, my goodness, there could be a day when I don't get to participate in football because I'm dropping weight so fast. And well, I mean, that could happen, but let's, you know, let's do this. Let's do this treatment so we can prevent you from ever having that happen. So we can protect the things that are really important to you versus waiting till it gets so bad that now your kid doesn't have the option to participate in outpatient and their world gets rocked a lot more. So worst case scenarios, if you suspect it, you can, you connect with a professional, you know, there might be some changes that you can make or that, you know, at both as a parent, as well as in therapy services for kids, you know, or it could be something that they need more intensive treatment. But if you can really find someone that you trust and, you know, has the expertise needed, they're going to be walking that journey with you. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I strongly encourage parents to get individual therapy as well. If it's a full-blown eating disorder, it might be a long road to recovery, but it's not impossible. I've seen hundreds of patients really transform their lives through eating disorder recovery. And it doesn't happen without a system, right? Whether it's family, community, friends, all of those folks being part of that support. And so I also encourage parents to remember that A recommendation for treatment is based on medical necessity. It's not about convenience. Might want our child to just go to outpatient treatment for once or twice a week, but what may they really may need is more intensive support. It's not going to look like that forever. It depends on that person's progress. But if we can get them the best care that they need, again, asking a trusted professional to do that evaluation and then render a diagnosis based on medical necessity. Yeah, I love it. Well, any additional thoughts we want to share today? Any concluding thoughts? Because I do want to make sure that we don't inundate our audience with so much that it feels overwhelming, <laughs> but, you know, but has people kind of think, is this relevant for me or my loved one? And where do I go next? Is there a way to figure out, is there like a, a credential or something that's associated with a professional who has an expertise in eating disorders? like? how, you know, addiction, you'll like here in North Carolina, it's an LCAS. Like, is there anything like that? Or do you need to read the bio of therapists or get a recommendation from your physician, get in front of the right person? Like how, do, how what's the best way to find the person? Because I don't want somebody to come to me for that 
I want them to come to you, you know, like that would be disappointing for them if they came to me for eating disorder treatment and they didn't understand like, oh, I'm not your girl for this. Like, let's find somebody who is. So how do they go about that? Right. Unfortunately, there isn't something similar to an LCAS designation. It's, it is really important to read the bio of a person, but also, I mean, what I would personally do is to ask what their experience with eating disorder treatment is. Have they sort of learned it, you know, on their own? Are they looking for something like that? Have they worked in intensive treatment? So for example, for me, because I worked at Eating Recovery Center in Chicago, they specialize in that. So having seen that at very high levels of care and learning that and being able to implement an outpatient versus I'm taking some classes and some training as I go along feels a little bit different for me. So personally, that's what I would look for. I would ask them how they received their training because it's not as easy to look for something like an LCAS designation. I kind of wish there were. I was just say I agree. I wish there was a way that you know a clinician could go through a specific you know type of training to say, to be able to say, okay, I've gotten the latest and the greatest in training, so I can feel competent in this area. And there are some areas in the area that I work in, and the areas of separation and divorce. There's not like a magical credential to it either. You know, you just you have to be such a constant learner and making sure that you're always getting the the research-based information to support your clients. But I just wanted to ask that question because if there was something Googleable, great. <laughs> if not, then we need to know that too. Yeah, I really wish there was. I think similar to what you're sharing, right? There's not a particular certification for something like that, right? I mean, trusted providers will go and continue to learn and develop treatments and, you know, specialties in that area over time. But there are some good resources online. So one that I often recommend is the National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA, N-E-D-A. So it's NEDA.org. I think fully spelled out, it's like nationaleatingdisorders.org. I love NEDA's website because they have a lot of different resources in terms of questions to ask treatment providers. What are levels of care? types of psychotherapy, what to expect, what are risk factors, information about body image. So Nita also had, and I think they still do, but they have like a parent's guide to eating disorders, which is actually a a very large book in and of itself. ANAD, the Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders Association, they have a really great website. And at least in Chicago, ANAD had some free peer-led groups as well. So I really love those community resources as well. So those are a couple of places I would highly recommend to get some information. Your eating disorder provider, of course, will recommend some specific resources for parents as well. I know Charlotte has at least a couple of, hopefully at least a couple of eating disorder groups once clients step down from treatment as well to kind of continue that ongoing care since recovery is a process. Yeah, that's helpful. I'm going to be looking into these resources more just so I can get more familiar with resources that are available in the community to direct my clients toward. I think there's so many of us who feel very comforted when we can get in front of a reputable resource to get ideas about what to expect or what this journey could look like to sort of brace ourselves. And I think that having these resources will be helpful so parents can do that. So, Oh, I forgot, Tara. There's also an eating disorder helpline 
And that's connected through NIDA, the National Eating Disorders Association. They have a helpline as well. So I have a few different resources for eating disorders, not to plug my own website, but this is just where they're located on my website. It has the eating disorders helpline on there, as well as NIDA and ANAD and a couple of other informational pieces as well. Well, I do want people to visit your website. I think that's a helpful tool for people. And I'm going to just restate your website. It's www.spatelservices.com. So you can go to that website, learn more about Sheethal. Then you can look at some of the resources she has linked on her website and just kind of start there and and get familiar with some of these principles so you can figure out what your next steps are. And, you know, obviously we're talking about some, you know, your practices here in Charlotte. You know, we're familiar with some of the other eating disorder specialists in our area, but the hope is that anybody listening from any area of the country or the world can access the resources that are local to them. And so, yeah, we got to start somewhere, but this is good. The eating disorder helpline. Okay. And if you're really unsure where to go in Charlotte, you know, having an assessment by a program or a center like Veritas Collaborative or Renfrew or Eating Recovery Center, those are also places that will do assessments and point you in the right direction and tell you what level of care that your child or loved one might need. Making notes here. Thank you so much. This has been so helpful. I appreciate your time, you know, you coming in setting aside this time today to talk about this topic, you know, we are in season six of our podcast and we really work to connect our audience to the people in our community that can give information to parents across the country. And we do have some people who listen from other countries, which is super cool. You know, we just, we want to provide a free resource to get families started in connecting with people to help support their families. So this has been a great tool for this. And I just want to say thank you again for being here. Absolutely. Thank you again for inviting me to collaborate with you on this, Tara. I'm really passionate about eating disorders and mental health as well, just like you are. So I'm happy to share any information and help with, if folks have questions anything like that, you can give me a call or you can contact me via my website as well. Okay. Thank you so much to our audience. Thank you so much for being here. We have new episodes almost every Wednesday. We are starting to wind down on season six and we are, we've got our plans in the work to proceed with season seven. So keep tuning in, pass along the episodes that are relevant to your family and friends and make sure that if you'd like to let us know that you have curiosity about a particular topic, you can reach us at my website, which is www.egancounseling. And my name is E-G-A-N, egancounseling.com. Thanks again for being here. 